Okay, well, it's so good to see you. Um, we are in a book at the moment. What's the book we're studying? First Peter. First Peter, great. And what I want to do, part of my objective in doing this, if I was to have a brand new Christian that arrived today, got born again today, I would, one of the books I would direct them to is First Peter. Because it addresses every single thing that you and I are going to encounter. Everything from marriage to salvation to how we treat other people to holiness. It's a really good random book. Now the point is, most people never go systematically through a book. So what I want to do is, if you have an outline... Um, I want you to pull it out, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to just work our way through a couple of those verses today. Now, the last four months, as if you haven't realized, has been quite a strange period of time. All our normal rhythms have gone out the window. You know, going to the gym, going to work, all, all the things we'd normally do. And even re relationships even felt very different through this time. I know that for some... I've been talking around my other fellow pastors as well, and in the broader body of Christ, many people have found living under the same roof for so long, seeing the same people day after day was quite challenging for some. I do know that. Maybe no, no necessary confessions here. And then, you know, dealing with families and kids, and then parents start to see kids for how they don't normally see them. You know, 360, well, it's 24 by 7. And then we have uh, the last few days, I need to touch on this. I am not going to give you a systematic thought from the scriptures on this, but it's been deeply disturbing that because of the COVID, I think this has exacerbated some of these things. We've seen the tragic death of George Floyd, which was wrong, and the ensuing riots, which came after that, which was also wrong. And actually, when you look at that from God's point of view, that's exactly the opposite way that God wants us to behave. Not full of division and strife and, and, and just fighting. Which reminded me of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was the seventh president of the United States. But before he became a president, he was a general in an army. And he came down to take his troops in one of the battles he was there, and he noticed in, in, in 1812, his troops had reached an all-time low in the morale. And he could tell that because they were all fighting, much like we see in the streets. They were all scrapping and just getting on each other, You're arguing and bickering and fighting among themselves. And so on this one occasion, he comes down to them, and he, he says to them, hey, listen, guys, gentlemen, the enemy is over there, not here. And sometimes we spend a lot of our time fighting internally in our communities, in our families, as couples. Remember, the enemy is out there. He is our real enemy. And that's based on that scripture, a house divided against itself will fall. Exactly. So, today though, I want to dwell on what Peter's getting at, and it's all about unity and harmony. However, what we're seeing and what we're going to read is sometimes a sobering reminder for couples, for families, and for some of you in this room you've had to deal with in your former lives in other churches. doesn't matter what they are, so don't go poking. I'm not poking anything. I'm going to look at what Paul Peter says about this. And we are forced to address this as we come to the biblical text. The Bible, though, says to you and me as a couple, as a family, and as a church, we are called to be different you may want to write that word just to brand it on your brain. Different, not to fit in. And the mark of a Christian life, 
the mark of a Christian couple, the mark of a Christian church should be God's will is unity and love. Never forget that. So if you get on the opposite side of that, you're on the opposite side of God's will. Now, now, I need to have a bit of true reflection before we get into the text. The current unrest in the world sometimes, and, and also what some, some of the world sees when they look historically at some of the church is disappointing. Because they see sometimes Christians as being no different. No different in values. No different in pursuits. No different in goals. No different in the way they argue. Their marriages aren't different. And that's a problem. Because we should be different. Perhaps the world can sometimes have seen, and maybe you've seen it, other people, of course not us, right? Who are self-seeking. <laughs> who are fractious, unloving, even argumentative. Maybe you've seen that. This is what Peter's going to get after very soon. Now, I want you to compare that thought as how sometimes how the world sees the church, families, and individuals. I want to compare that to how important Christian unity was to Jesus first. Let's look at what Jesus said. According to Jesus, on the night he instituted the Last Supper, he assumed the role of a servant and he washed the disciples' feet. Remember that picture really, really clearly. John 13, 12. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? Interesting question. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, a living example, not just a concept, but a living example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one is greater, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, there's a difference between a concept and an application. Um, probably Jesus, uh, people expected, um, uh, let me say that again, probably Jesus, they were expecting him to say to them, you need to do this to each other right now. But actually, in verse 34 and 35, he turns it around, the whole concept to loving others. And this is what he says. He told his disciples, a brand new commandment I give to you. First verse in your outline. That you love one another, even as I have loved you. Look at my example. I was a servant. I didn't come to be served. For even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, by this, by what? By the love that you have for one another. One another in your marriage. One another in your family. One another in the church. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love, one for another. So, let's get real practical here. Do you find it's really easy to love Christ for all he's done for you? Yes, very easy, right? But it's not so easy, here it comes, to love one another, right? Oh yeah, this is where it's hard, to love other Christians. Sometimes to even love your spouse. Yet that is a command of Jesus. Later on, Jesus prays to the Father for unity among the Christians, not uniformity, never uniformity, but unity. And then Peter is now about to offer, with that context, some thoughts on unity within the body. And it's a unity that often suffers, which is the context. These people were suffering. They were being persecuted. 
they were being killed. This is the context that Peter's about to write to. He's, he's getting after unity in amongst all this. And he says this. Uh, actually, before we get there, Paul says this. He says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, count others more significant than yourselves. Ooh, that means you don't look down on anybody. Let each one of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, that sounds something like you would tell, I was at a party yesterday for a one-year-old. Sounds like something you'd tell your one and two and three-year-olds, right? Kindergartners. Basically, you know, share, don't be selfish, and think of others. That's exactly what you'd tell them. Yet how many adult problems could be solved if those two verses were the driving force in our relationships with one another? If that was really was. How many couples would actually resolve their differences? How many fathers and sons, or fathers and son-in-laws, or mothers and daughters could resolve their issues if those verses were the guiding force? How many churches? Sadly, what happens is, in England, where it is where I was born, they would be very passionate about soccer. And it was one team against another. And so you'd fight for your soccer team. You know, Everton versus Liverpool, whatever it may be. And then they, get, then they become born again. And then they just fight for different things. But they're still fighting. God says, no, that is not my way. There's no change. You just change the target of it. Now, love is a never-to-be-forgotten command. And we forget this too easily. With the teachings of Jesus and Paul as a background, now I want to dive right in. You will be able to better appreciate and understand Peter's comments towards the end of the first chapter. Remember, these Christians were hurting, they were distressed in extreme conditions, they were going through various trials in verse 6, and some were no doubt tempted to conform to the world, give it up, and compromise, and give in, or give it up altogether. So Peter's reading, uh, readers all experienced a loss of hope and a fragmenting of their normal community, much like the world and the church has done right now. Now, with this in mind, Peter begins encouraging the believers to pull together because they're part of the same family. They need to go in the same direction, pursuing the same goal, and needing a community where they can find love and acceptance. So, how is that even possible when you're under the gun, when things aren't going well? How do we develop unity in community so we do not live isolated lives, lonely lives, and hopeless lives? Because those three things go together. Now, Peter is about to give us three clear answers. How do you do this when you're under the gun? 1 Peter 1.22, the first part. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren... Now, just that first part of the verse, three things pop out. Number one, we need an obedience to the truth to get unity. We need a purity of soul to get unity. And we need sincere love for other Christians. In other words, a lack of hypocrisy. In other words, saying one thing and doing something completely different. First, unity requires obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth means that we don't just follow our inner urges. We don't follow the examples of others or the cultural norms, what everybody else is doing. We don't look at others when we're looking at others, because you do and I do, through our own distorted lens, because we've got very limited perspectives. And we've got our own biases. 
we obey the truth, which is God's standard, which never changes. And that tells us what it means to be a Christian. This obedience to the truth has a purifying effect on us. It purges us of not only hurt feelings, because every one of you in this room has had hurt feelings. Every single one of us. They're hard to get over, right? If you've ever been stuck, you know. Every time it, it hurts. But obedience to the truth will purge you, will rid you of hurt feelings and resentment. Boy, I wish they didn't do that. And grudges. And also, obedience to the truth will rid us of our limited perspective. Because we don't know God's truth is never wrong. So hang on to that, and that will help purge you of that rubbish. Number two, unity requires purity of the soul. This excludes, this excludes no room for pride because God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. It'll exclude prejudices. There is no room, and all of you know in this church, we're blessed. We have, I think at last count, we have 37 different nationalities represented in our church. I love that. I've always said, God, we want the licorice all sorts church. That's what we want. Because that's what's going to be in heaven. That's a true reflection of heaven. None of this. So there is no room for resentment or grudges or anything like that or bitterness. Unity requires purity of soul. It means getting rid or cleansing those things that stand between you and that person that you've got an issue with. It means doing it. Applying God's word, you act your way into a feeling rather than feel your way into an action. Because if you wait till the feelings get right, you'll never get it done. You need to act your way into that feeling to get that and acting on God's truth. Then this purity of soul helps us love each other unhypocritically with sincere love. And it doesn't blind us, though, to each other's faults. It gives us the grace to see them as God sees them and love them as he loves them. And third, unity requires a sincere love because of our obedience to the truth and the cleansing of a soul, we are freed now to love without hypocrisy, without doing one thing and saying one thing and in our hearts being completely in another zone. And we are given an extra measure of grace to overlook the faults of others. Because here's the truth. We all know that. Nobody would say we're perfect, but somehow our imperfections are less than somebody else's imperfections, right? <laughs> and that is not the truth. We are all given grace by God. That's why he says to you, friends, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received forgiveness, freely give it. Otherwise, there's some dangerous territory that you get into there. So what keeps this love strong? Verse 22, then moves on from the conditions that make loving unity possible to a command that makes it real. There is a command. Verse 22, fervently, that means constantly, Love one another from the heart. And you know the difference. You know the difference in your marriage between love that's fervent from the heart and a perfunctory type of a love. Huh? You know that. You can be polite, and that's important to be polite, but it's more than that. In practical terms, Peter's exhortation here means we need to support each other in tough times when things are not going well. Because some of you sitting here today in the next three to four months, are going to suffer job loss. It, things will not be easy. The shock of that job loss or a broken relationship 
When that happens, you will need help from other people or the loss of a business. Nothing is for sure on this earth. That's why God says, do not put your hope in wealth, which is so and so. In fact, don't put your hope in anything that can be taken from you. Christ cannot be. Now, they will need help to get through the feeling of, if anybody's been made redundant before, you know what that feels like. When that happens to people around you, you need to be there to help them to, to, to deal with the feelings of rejection and shame sometimes and loneliness and despair. Others will need encouragement in their faith because their faith is wobbling. Now, this kind of selfless love does not come naturally. Oh, no. But our old selfish nature kicks with all sorts of kind of excuses. You know, well, I don't have any, as much experience as other people to help those people. Or they aren't my gifts. Or I've got my own problems. Or I don't have time. I'm pushed. But pre Peter preempts all of those ridiculous excuses. And then he dives into four essential reminders of why we are to care and support one another in the family of God. So four reminders he gives us in these next verses. Why we're to care and support for one another. And if we hear, learn and apply these four reminders, we will please our Father's heart and we will much have less, much less trouble in disunity in our marriages, in our families, and in our churches across the nation. Number one, the first thing to always remember, and this is what Peter gets after, is we are all children of the same Father. All children of the same Father. 1 Peter 1, 23a. Since you've been born again, because you've been born again. Being born again places into a new family, the family of God. And if we are, with his we are his children, we are related to one another as brothers and sisters. Now notice the logical connection between verse 22 and verse 23. We fervently love one another from the heart. Why? Why should I do that, Peter? Because you've been born again. And we're believers all from the same family and in the same way. 1 Peter 1, 23. Since you've been born again, since that's happened, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, abiding word of God. So what it's saying is we're all permanent members of the family of God. Brothers and sisters will see each other in heaven. So remember that. Peter's point, because you're born again in the same family of God, live like it. Don't live like enemies divided. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God. So you are part of the family. So, here's a question. Are you treating fellow believers as children of the same heavenly family? Or have you allowed the poison of bitterness and resentment and disappointment to color your thinking. So take a few moments to think about your own situation. And especially consider specific people, let me put it bluntly, guys, because I tell you as it is, that you're ticked off with. You've got to deal with it. You can't just, oh, I'm not, and ignore it, because that's living hypocritically. We have to look at the problem and then say, God, what do you want me to do about that? So who specifically have you exhibited unloving attitudes or unloving actions to perhaps in the last little while? 
This is when the rubber meets the road. Tina, quit looking at Gerard's stuff. <laughs> but this is where it really meets the road. We can't say one thing and listen to the word of God and not apply it. Number two, the second thing Peter gets after, he says, we take our instruction from the same source. So we're not running from two different song sheets, two different choir books. We're running from the same source. 1 Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is, here's the word, perishable. That's corruptible. It's not going to last. That's not what you've been born again, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, this will endure forever. By the way, he's quoting from somewhere there. He's quoting from Isaiah. Peter's reference to the word of God as a seed by which we are reborn echoes also Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew 13. For the seed to take root and to bear fruit, it must be well planted and watered in our lives. Now, to me as a pastor and a teacher for the last 30 odd years, it has amazed me how the word of God can have different effects. The same scripture read, the same scripture taught or preached leads to such radically different results with different people. I've got, whoa, same verse, same person, same application, but some people take it. And that, why is that? It's because the word needs to be understood, embraced, and applied, not merely heard. When Bex moved forward, she was stuck for a while. She moved forward because she moved and she applied the word of God. Again, notice how I, um, Peter quotes here from Isaiah 40. Intentionally contrasting the word of God, which is powerful and eternal and effective and imperishable, with us. And by the way, that Isaiah 40, where he's quoting from, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In other words, Peter's contrasting the eternal word of God with us, which are just pssst, smoke. Grass that gets nuked in the summer, with green one minute and gone the next. We are in the opposite to the word of God. We are weak and we are perishable and we're defective. So, let's pull together as God's family to do that, we need to receive instruction from God's word and diligently implant it in our minds and hearts, and that's what will change us. The third reason for pulling together is because we face common struggles in our relationships. This is where some rubber is going to be squeaking. Peter begins chapter 2. By the way, you all know, don't you, that in the original text, there are no chapter divisions and no verses. They came later. So sometimes don't just stop when you come to the end of a chapter. That's the, not the end of the logical thought. Therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to see what it's therefore. It's what precedes us, right? Therefore, he begins. Expecting our new lives in Christ should result, because of all these things I've just talked about in chapter 1, these things should result in our Christian life. Genuine mutual love. Such love binds believers together as they face struggles. It doesn't tear them apart. Believers, though, here he gets really, really clear. He says, believers need to get rid of any attitude or hindrance that could threaten this love. And he basically nails five of them. Here they come. These things will kill unity and harmony and cause division and factions. Here they are. He says, therefore... Putting aside, in other words, get rid of that stuff. All malice, 
and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. There's five of them. So in light of this, we should put aside five things which we all struggle with. Now, think of it like this. Yeah, Daniel or Jordan. When you take off a rugby jersey that's filthy, your mother will probably say, get that thing off outside. Do not bring it into this house. Right, Lila? Right, get it out. <laughs> and in fact, if you're helping your mother, you'll probably hose it off with a hose first <laughs> before she sticks it in the washing machine. Actually, you should be doing that by now, but that's all good. But anyway, just as we take off a muddy rugby jersey, we have to strip it off. Get that thing off. It's a family show. My mother used to sometimes get us stripped down to our undies before we could come inside. She was that bad. You should be good like that, Lila. <laughs> <laughs> so just as we take off that, strip that off, we're to strip off malice. That's what it says. Strip off malice, which is doing evil despite the good that's been done to you. Excuse me. Has God been good to you? Has he been good to you? Strip that off. Malice is doing evil in spite of the good done to you. Then deceit. That's deliberately shading the truth, misleading people, or frankly, lying. Strip it off. Shake it off. Hypocrisy. That, now, this is, a, this is a subtle one. We don't talk about that much. Have you noticed that? What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is presenting good motives. Well, it's all good. But mask a selfish desire. Presenting good motives to the outside, but deep inside, the selfish desire going on. It's gotten quiet in here. <laughs> I think we all know what we're talking about there. Strip it off. Envy. Well, we all know the definition of envy, but I thought I'd dive down into a guy called Edward Selwyn. And he says this, he puts it very bluntly. He says, envy is a constant plague of all organizations, not least religious organizations, and to which even the 12 disciples were subject. So don't think, oh, I'm off the tree here. Even the disciples battled, oh, I want to sit next to you in heaven, Jesus. <laughs> the mama's getting in there. too. Boys, you can see that. What about slander? That's the fifth one. So we've looked at those five things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That's to speak ill of another. So speak ill. That's defamation, which is especially present when a rumor is passed around. Now, all of those five things, Peter says, have a disastrous effect in a relationship. However that is. And each one of them flies in the face of Peter's call for both brotherly love, Philadelphia, or unconditional love, agape. Now, Peter narrows on specific areas which every believer will struggle. Here we are for the rest of our lives. That's the truth. The fourth reason we ought to pull together as a family of God is because we all want to grow towards spiritual maturity. We all want to grow. People hate getting stuck. A passion, that passion to grow should be increasing. First Peter 2, verse 2 through 3. Like newborn babies, crave, hang out for, pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. 
So over the three years that Peter had with Jesus, he followed him closely, listened to his words very carefully, tracked his actions, and witnessed the miracles. Peter had personally, which we've been talking about in our small group, really had tasted patience beyond measure with Jesus. You know, because Peter blew it, right? At the top of his lungs, at the worst possible moment, he'd received forgiveness way beyond what he deserved. And because of his growth in Christ-like spiritual maturity, Peter now is encouraging his own disciples on the same spiritual path. As newborn babies, believers must feed on the Word and grow in their understanding and their application of the Word of God in their salvation. So, if the goal of the Christian life is spiritual maturity, then nourishment comes from the Word of God and it is modeled by the Son of God. Let me say it again. If the goal of Christian life is spiritual maturity, then nourishment comes from the Word of God, and the model is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is a sure hope in hurtful times. But tragically and far too often, the family of God, for some of you in this room, historically has been a source of hurt. Some past life. But, Peter says, we must all strive to set aside our petty differences, embrace our common salvation, and live the lives that reflect the hope for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that sounds easy, but I don't know about you, Kate. I found that a full-time task. (laughs) It's easy to be holy by myself. It's when I get involved with other people. It's a bit more challenging, okay? Now, we'll wrap this up. Four steps to unity. Christians are to strive both for maturity in knowledge and unity in love. There are two things to go after. Maturity in knowledge and unity in love. We should keep an important, that important objective at the forefront of our mind as Christians. Treating each other at the same time with humility and respect and helping each other along the path as we seek to become like Christ. So Jesus set the example then the disciples showed it could be done. Only the remains of our old nature keep us from doing exactly the same. It's time we strip off the old and pull together and put on the new. So, as we take a few, as we conclude this, I want you to take a few minutes to probe your own hearts. I've been doing that this week. And, and your habits, your heart and your habits in the light of God's word, particularly as we think about the need for unity, ask yourself the first question. Are you treating your fellow believers as different as they all are? Because God loves variety. As the children of the same Heavenly Father that you have. Are you treating them that way? How do you know that you're treating them that way? See, One of the ways you know you're not treating them that way is indicated by practices such as gossiping about other believers. Complaining. Complaining. I don't know how Moses did it. Moses was the... (laughs) He had millions of grumblers and complainers. Maybe people look to you and they grumble. I don't know. Grumbling about decisions, criticizing others' shortcomings. Oh, they never do that. 
shortcoming and, and then developing cliques. Think about your own social life for a minute, your social life. Are there indications that you are exhibiting any of those attitudes? And are there any particular people to whom you have exhibited unloving attitudes? Yeah? Or actions? Everybody in this room, if we're honest right now, if we're dead honest, me, you, could probably, if we want to get serious with God, say, God, who are they? And he'll tell you. And what should I do? So nobody's exempt from these. I'm not. Second serious question. Are you actively implanting the word of God in your heart daily? Now, when it comes to relationships with others, it's way too easy on this issue to become hearers. Yep, I agree, I agree, I agree, and not do. I know that from personal experience, and maybe you do too. So why not today, just in a brief moment, consider some specific actions that you'll take to submit yourself more intentionally to the instruction of God's truth? Yeah. Because it never changes. Here's a question. Do you faithfully hear the word of God or regularly read it? Are you happy with the habits and rhythms you have around the word of God? Or do you think, "Mm, yep, I need to probably get a bit more focus on that. Do you ponder its meaning and significance? Or, okay, five minutes, I've got to do, that's all I've got. All right, God, speak to me now. Is that the attitude? And sometimes, as I said last week, you have to have a takeaway, a fast food. But God wants you to also sit down sometime and have a banquet and enjoy him. Do you plan specific actions to respond to what God speaks to your heart? Or does it, yep, tick, done that for today. Jim, tick, done that. Kiss my husband, check, done that. <laughs> See, applying God's truth, I find, is not automatic. It takes discipline and follow-through, personal follow-through. Number three, second to last. What common struggles affect you most in your relationships with others? Do you struggle with malice? That's evil in thoughts or intentions or actions. How about deceit, lies or half-truths or shading the truth or withholding the truth? Here's a, here's a big one in our area, hypocrisy. So that means putting on a show for the world and everybody else to see, sometimes even your spouse or other people, somebody in your family, but hiding the real intention of your heart and covering the motive so it can't be seen easily. Do you struggle with envy? Jealous feelings. You know, God made everybody individual. There'll never be another one like you or me. And he wants us to be us. We'll never be anybody. There'll always be people better off than you, always people worse off. Always people better connected to you, always people worse. So half of that is accepting what God has put us and not being on that constant envy treadmill. How about slander? Are you quick to offer unrestrained criticism? Well, here's one you'll see sometimes, and maybe you've met people like this who are uh, sort of like they're going to bent towards cynical comments. They can always find 
a problem in every solution, right? No matter what you suggest, there's always, no, we can't do that. So be painfully honest on that one. Have there been ways that you've particularly hurt other people? Because God is interested that our beliefs absolutely should affect our behaviors. Number four, and finally, is Christ-like spiritual maturity your primary ambition? Now think carefully before you answer that. What I'm really asking, and what Peter is asking, as you'll see later on, is what is your top priority in life? Where are you directing most of your energy and of your time and your resources? For example, if a video crew, boy, we've seen enough of these videos, video crew were following you around for a week, what would it reveal about your top priority? How much footage would they get of the various sections of your life? Or an accountant were to flip through your statements. Or a third person was to take a look at your calendar. Would anybody reasonably conclude that Christian growth and your Christian life is the most important thing to you in your life? The pearl of great price. Now these, as it were, almost diagnostic questions can help us focus and get to the root issues that are affecting relationships and can help us effectively apply the word of God to our lives. But until you make a decision to do what's necessary to come together and provide love and hope for your fellow believers, absolutely nothing will change. So as I close, I'm going to take a few moments to just pray. I'm going to ask that God would conform us new, in a new way to his spirit and his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask for God's spirit to help to help put aside our old habits that produce disharmony and hurt and instead put on brand new habits that promote harmony and hope. Let's pray. Father, today your word has touched on some very key points that we need to change. Forgive us for the hours that we have spent in the wasteland of malice and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Lord, those times when we haven't thought the best. Lord, help us toss off those things like filthy clothes. Father, remind us that it all begins, change begins with a genuine love prompted by forgiveness. Holy Spirit, would you start a new work within us so that our love flows from a pure heart, not from a desire to win friends or impress people. Most of all, Lord, would you make us like your son, meek and humble and gracious. May we grow up into his likeness. May we model his humility. May we walk with his strength. Father, we want to reflect your grace so that others may gain hope. So what we're really asking for here, Lord, is that you help us grow up in the family likeness 
of your son, Jesus. We're so glad to be in your family, so grateful to be recipients of your forgiveness and that we've been adopted forever into your family. Would you use us this week, perhaps even today, to help someone else feel grateful that they're part of your forever family through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask it. Amen. I would highly encourage all of us to take even just those five points and say, Lord God, apply these and change me because this is when change happens. This is when things that have been stuck for a long time get unstuck. But it starts with our willingness to say, God, make me like you. God bless. Thanks. Thank you so much.